wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had, be, had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Alkadama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men. Joseph, called Barsabas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Well, you want to uh, keep those uh, Bible readings handy. There's an outline on the back of them. Let's pray and ask God for his help as we look at his word. 
Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes this morning, that we would see wonderful things in your word, and that you would fill us with faith and joy in believing, with love for you, for all the saints, and for this lost world. Amen. Well, I uh, remember as a young, stupid, uh, pyromanically inclined teenager, uh, some of my, one of my friends came one day uh, and had somehow secured a recipe for homemade napalm. Now, uh, I'll say now, this is not one of our finest moments. Uh, we made this stuff, and uh, this is the downside of your year seven son coming up into big church, hearing all your bad stories. Uh, we made some of this stuff. It was horrible, sticky, goopy stuff. Uh, and we took it out into the bush near we, where we lived, uh, and we put a gob of it on a big rock and set it on fire. Uh, when it began to pour out this stream of just thick, black smoke, we began to worry that we would get caught. Uh, so in a panic, uh, one of my friends tried jumping on this napalm to put the fire out. Uh, to our horror, as soon as he jumped on it, the fire just poof, spread everywhere, stuck to his shoes, he was on fire, the rock was on fire, some st sticks were on fire, and we were worried we were about to burn the whole of Mount Kola to the ground. Well, as we read the book of Acts, the gospel, the message about Jesus' death and resurrection is a bit like that napalm. Because throughout the book of Acts, over and over and over again, enemies of Jesus try and stomp out, stamp out, kill the growth of the good news of Jesus. They try and stomp out and kill the church. But like my friend on that day, every time the enemies of Christ try and stomp out the gospel, all they do is make it spread and grow even more and even faster. See, the unstoppable, unslowable spread of the Christian gospel and of the church in the first century is one of the most baffling phenomena in all of history. How did this tiny bunch of fishermen and outcasts lead a movement that would topple whole empires without even raising a sword or a spear? How did a message which at its core was about self-denial, which was about, uh, which guaranteed pain and suffering if you were to believe and follow it, how did that message gather so many followers? How did Christianity spread from this tiny little insignificant city of Jerusalem into every corner and culture and people of the world? It's a baffling phenomenon. But right off the bat, here in Acts chapter 1, Luke gives us the two ingredients that actually make perfect sense of that spread. We begin with the Messiah's parting promise. Now, if I was to try and start a new religion, uh, to gather up some followers and send them into the world proclaiming that Scott is the hope of the world, they wouldn't get much further uh, than Cornerstone. I don't think they'd even make it into Mount Barker. Uh, and they, they wouldn't take long till they ran out of puff. They just can't be bothered anymore. 
Uh, and it wouldn't be very long till they realise that Scott is actually not the hope of the world and not worth talking about at all. See, Jesus left his disciples with that mission to go into the whole world to all people, proclaiming that he, Jesus, is the hope of the world. But Jesus' disciples had two things that Luke shows us here that my disciples never could have. The first is proof and the second is power. Let's start with proof. See, these disciples didn't stare death and discomfort in the face because of an idea or because of a story that they claimed to be true. They were willing to stare death in the face because they had proof that Jesus is the hope of the world. Have a look there at verse 3 with me. After his suffering, that is, after Jesus died, he then presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. See, after Jesus died on that cross, he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive again. Now, how do you, how do you prove you're alive after you've died? Well, you turn up, you walk in, you say, hey guys, it's me, remember me? Look, I've still got the holes in my hand from where they nailed me to the cross and look, check this out, this is where they stuck the spear in my guts. Hey, are you guys, are you guys hungry? I'm starving, have you got any food? Let's sit down and let's have some food together. And, and then you, sh- you remind them of what you said to them in private. You remind them that you told them that this would happen. You show them from the Bible that actually this is what God said all along would happen to his Christ, to his Messiah. And then you do it again and again and again for over a month to over 500 people until finally they've got the picture, convincing proof that Jesus is alive. See, the first reason that accounts for how the good news of Jesus spread so rapidly and quickly and never stopped, even when people tried to stamp it out, is that these disciples had convincing proof. They were 120% convinced that Jesus really is the risen Lord and Saviour. Why? Because they saw him and they touched him and they heard him after he'd risen from the dead. And you know what? I actually think that that reality, that those disciples were so convinced, is actually a convincing proof for us today. Uh, there was a guy called, uh, in the States called Chuck Colson. Uh, he was involved in Watergate scandal. And he said this uh, many years after Watergate. He said this, I know that the resurrection of Jesus is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned and put in prison. 
They would not have endured that if it was not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. See, the spread of the gospel, the news of Jesus, the spread of the church, the fearlessness of these previously wimpy apostles is for us convincing proof that they really saw Jesus alive. They had proof. But Jesus knew that overwhelming proof and conviction on its own wouldn't be enough. That wouldn't keep them going on its own. And Jesus is not the kind of God who gives an impossible mission that we can't complete. So Jesus also promised to give his disciples power. Have a look at me on verse 4. On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, I don't uh, know what you know about the Holy Spirit. Uh, We'll learn more about the Spirit through this term. Uh, Certainly not everything there is to know. Uh, But one, the first thing we need to know about the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit is not a thing. It's not a force. It is a person. And he is God. The Spirit is God. Not, Not a God, like there's God and then there's the Spirit. He is the one God, the one God who, mind-blowingly, is one God but three persons. He is Father, He is Son, He is Holy Spirit, all one. And so here, when Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will come to His disciples, He's actually promising that God Himself will come to them. The Spirit, who is one with God the Father and one with God the Son, will come and be and live and stay with his disciples to give them power to be his witnesses, to give them power to go and do the mission that he has given them, to take the news of Jesus to all the ends of the earth. See, Jesus had promised that he wouldn't leave his disciples on their own. He wouldn't abandon them. He wouldn't leave them orphans. He would come to them by his spirit coming to be with them. Now, as mind-bending as that is, as much as we kind of struggle to, to figure that out with our brains because it's not something we can touch and taste and see, We've got to step back and realise that's an incredible promise, isn't it? What an incredible promise that God was coming 
to live in us, to be with us and never leave us, and to give us the power to join him in this incredible mission that he is doing in the world. Well, if you jump down uh, to verse 16 there, you see there that the Holy Spirit is the one who many years before had given the prophets of old the power to face death, to keep speaking and writing the words of God. And Jesus is saying to his disciples now, that very same power, that very same spirit who helped those prophets of old face death and speak my word, he is coming to be with you. He will give you power to face death, to speak my word, to do this mission to the ends of the earth. Now, I don't know how you feel about uh, telling people that they need Jesus. Uh, I still find it kind of scary. You know, I think most of us, probably all of us, if we're honest, we find that kind of daunting, Right? You know, we see people and, and, and we know how impossible faith is, humanly speaking. Only God can change hearts from stone to flesh. And it's kind of scary. And we don't even face persecution and death for doing it in this country. But if you're someone who's believed in Jesus, his spirit is in you. The same spirit that took these 12 wimpy apostles and gave them the power to face death, face persecution, and never back down from telling people the truth about Jesus. That same spirit is in you. That same spirit will give you power to talk to your friend, your neighbour, your family, to be bold with the gospel even if it will cost us, even if it will hurt our relationships and our standing. See, we didn't see that empty tomb and the risen Jesus with our own eyes, but we did learn the same truth that sets people free, that brings people from death to life, from darkness to light. We inherited the same mission that Jesus passed down here to the disciples in Acts 1. A mission that seems impossible. But he's given us his spirit to do it. That nudges us to fulfil that mission. That equips us and gives us the words to speak. Well, the disciples were given an incredible promise. They were given incredible proof. And they were given incredible power to fulfil his mission to the ends of the earth. But the Holy Spirit hadn't come yet. Uh, It was time to wait. So after Jesus uh, had said this, uh, Jesus did something amazing that I think we often don't think much about. Have a look at verse 9 there. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. I, just, I try and picture this. I don't know about you, but I try and imagine, you know, being on a little mountain and you're talking to Jesus and then all of a sudden he just, I don't know if it's fast, I don't know if it's slow, but he just starts going up. 
until he gets up so high that the clouds hide him and you can't see him anymore. Now, Jesus, you know, if you're one of these 12, you've seen Jesus do some pretty amazing things. But this is up there with the best of them. You know, this is more convincing proof that Jesus is who he said he is. But then as soon as Jesus disappears, the disciples find themselves a little bit like a toddler who's been dropped off to daycare for the first time. You know, they've been, mum's dropped them off. They've gone, oh, look at these great toys and they're playing and then sort of mum walks out the door and the toddler's looking at the door thinking maybe she's getting something from the car and she's about to walk back in. And they're trying to figure out what's going on here. And I think that's probably how the disciples felt. Have a look at verse 10. They were looking up intently into the sky and I think they're like, can you see him? I can't see him. Where is he? Is he th- no, that's not him. You know, They're looking intently into the sky when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. See, like that three-year-old staring at the daycare door expecting mum to come back, the disciples can hardly believe that Jesus is actually gone. But this was the plan. This was always the plan. It was the plan Jesus had given them. Jesus had to leave so the Spirit could come, so that his word could go out into all the world before he returns before he comes back to judge. Why do you, and, and it's very similar, isn't it? It's similar to the question, actually, just 40 days earlier, that two angels asked the women at Jesus' tomb. As they stood there looking at an empty tomb, not quite sure what to make of it, the angels said, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, he is risen just as he said. It's a bit like right now, those two angels are saying, come on, guys, he's gone like he said he would. He told you to go to Jerusalem and wait. So get moving. He'll send his spirit. Don't stand around. Obey. Go. Wait. Get ready. Jesus' return means that this mission matters. See, Jesus' return means that this mission is urgent. There is a a definite time. There is a cut-off date for this mission. After Jesus comes back, that's it. There's no more opportunity for people to come to Christ, to find life, to be rescued. This mission is urgent. But for the disciples at that point in time, the mission can't begin until the Spirit comes. So they do as Jesus told them. They head back to Jerusalem. They get busy waiting. Uh, We read there that they're joined by the women who followed Jesus and also members of Jesus' family. And, And what do they do? They pray constantly. Now we can only imagine what they might have been praying No doubt they were praising God for the amazing things that they'd witnessed. No doubt they were thanking God that he had chosen them to be his children and and allowed them to know Jesus and see Jesus and be witness to the resurrection. No doubt 
they were asking God to send the Spirit like he promised so they could have power to complete this task ahead. I want us to notice just two things uh, here in these verses. Uh, the first is, is who is there? We've got the 11 who saw Jesus risen. Uh, now, we're going to have question time uh, in a little while, and you can ask me about why there's a, a Judas there. Um, we've also got the women who ran to the tomb and met Jesus face to face, and we've also got fa- Jesus' family. Now, remember Jesus' family, not very long before, had thought Jesus was out of his mind. Not long before, they'd said, come on, Jesus, come home and stop, stop saying all these things about yourself. You know, stop saying that you're the Messiah. You're going to get yourself hurt. And yet here is Jesus' family. A change of heart, a change of tone, because they too are witness to the resurrection. Further convincing proof for us that Christ is really risen. And the second thing I want us to notice, and, and even more importantly, is actually that this mission isn't just a human mission. The mission that Jesus has left for his people in the world is a divine and human mission together. A mission that can only be undertaken in joint cooperation between God and his people. And so without the Spirit coming, there could be no mission. It couldn't have taken place. He actually held his disciples back from the mission until the Spirit came to them. And that means that God actually isn't asking us to do anything off our own bat. God isn't expecting us to come up with the strength or the power or the the ability to be his witnesses in the world. He's not expecting us to just buckle up and come up with it ourselves. He's not sending us out alone on our own into the wolves. He's sending us into wolves, but he's sending us into wolves with his spirit in us, making the mission possible, making salvation possible, meaning that from my feeble mouth, from my clumsy words, from my feeble love for people, actually he can work and bring about eternal life. The job's always easier when you do it with someone else, isn't it? Sometimes even just having someone there, even if they're not doing anything, can make doing a job easier, can't it? If you feel daunted by the mission that God has given you, if you feel a bit crushed by the weight of knowing that you know people who at the moment are lost without Jesus, who at the moment are staring down the barrel of an eternity of condemnation, if you feel crushed by that, How comforting is it to know that God is not expecting you to bear that weight alone. He doesn't expect you to do it on your own. He's given you his spirit to partner with you, to give you the power and the strength and the courage to be able to open your mouth and tell people that they need Jesus. To open your mouth and let people know that God loves them and the reason why we know 
is a big cross and an empty tomb. What a freeing realisation that God has given us his spirit. What a freeing reality. What a wonderful, wonderful promise and blessing. Now, unlike uh, the disciples, we're not waiting for the spirit. We have it already. But we are waiting for Jesus to come back. And so now is not a time to be twiddling our thumbs and staring into the sky. Now is a time for prayerful relying on his spirit and joining with him in mission. We'll think a lot more about that in the coming weeks as we work through the book of Acts. But here at this moment in time, there was just one more thing that had to happen before the spirit could come. The scripture had to be fulfilled. Have a look at verse 16. Peter jumped up and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and he shared in our ministry. Jump down to verse 20. For said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who've been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. The last thing that had to take place before the coming of the Spirit was the replacement of the betrayer. Just like God had chosen 12 sons to be the beginning of his people Israel, to form the 12 tribes of the people of Israel, God had chosen for 12 apostles to be the beginning of his church. And Judas, the scriptures say, had to be replaced by someone else who was qualified as a witness. Someone who, just like the rest of the 11, had been with Jesus and seen the things he'd done from the time he was baptised to the time he went back to heaven. And Peter says here that actually there's no place for an apostle who hasn't seen the risen Lord Jesus with his own eyes. So they narrow down their options, they leave it to God to show who he's chosen. And Matthias became the 12th apostle. The stage is set. Everything is ready. Everything is ready for God's spirit to come and this incredible mission to begin. Everything is ready for that fire to be lit that will never be put out and will spread throughout the whole world. It starts, we read here, there's only 120, verse 15. And yet soon that number will grow and grow and continue to grow until the day Christ returns. I've got a question for us this morning before we close in prayer. Uh, and uh, you'll find it there at the bottom of your outline. Uh, a great question to talk about over morning tea or on your drive home uh, or over lunch. How much do you rely on the Spirit? You, know, you, you could probably tweak that a bit. How much do you take comfort in the fact that God's Spirit is in you to equip and empower you for the mission that he has given us? Just a great thing to ponder this morning. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the incredible proof that we have, that we can know beyond a doubt that Christ is risen, that there's no doubt that he really is God and Lord of all, that everything he said is true, and that in him and him alone is life and salvation and hope for all the world. But thank you, Lord, that more than that, you've also given us your spirit. Thank you that your spirit has come into our hearts to show us Jesus, to soften our hearts of stone, the hearts of flesh, that we can receive your incredible love and grace for us. But also, just like you did with the prophets in the past, your spirit is in us to give us power to speak to show to others the truth that Jesus is the living Lord and the hope of all the world. We pray, Lord, that we'll take great comfort, great courage and great power in that reality and that your spirit would equip each of us to be bold, to be wise, to be faithful as your witnesses in this world. Amen.